0: If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author, Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey.
1: Greetings everyone, Uh, getting started just a little bit late, some technical difficulties uh, from the engineers, but we are now ready to go and we're running here live and today we have a great show. We are going to be thinking inside the box, but before we get started on that, I want to reach out to a really good friend of ours, Kathy Berry. She dropped off some treats today. So these, we'll be thinking inside the bucket. Those are human treats. (laughs) Inside the box. Yeah, treats for humans, they're little Heath candies. And right now I'm holding them because I have a situation here, which I have competitive aggression occurring. I've got <laughs> Kira snarling at Joshua, Joshua <laughs> snarling at Kira, and they're about ready to come to blows over these treats. So Kathy, thank you. But then again, no, thank you. So I'm, I'm having to deal with this on the radio show and it's really bad. So <laughs> anyway, no, you me. will not hold them. I'm going to put them over here out of reach. <laughs> All right, so now that's over. We won't have any heads diving into a bucket, hopefully. Uh, we can now get on with the show. Okay, so today we want to talk a little bit. Uh, there's there's a new, I guess, uh, attempt to desensitize dogs to known fears and anxiety issues, and they're using an old technique that's been around for many years in human mental therapy. And it's known as cognitive Cognitive shifting. Um, So what they're trying to do is, again, imagine a dog who hates nail trims, tries to bite the veterinarian when getting vaccinated, and goes berserk when a stranger enters the house. Imagine that dog now, instead of doing those behaviors, they're becoming very fearful of the veterinarian, uh, becoming irritated or fearful of the nail trims, and certainly the stranger's coming to home, instead now focusing all of its attention on food in the bottom of a box. Um, uh, sounds impressive, and we've watched a lot of videos. We're going to show you some pictures of it here in a minute. Uh, dogs with their heads sunk in the bottom of these boxes. Now, that is known as cognitive shifting, and that is a mental process of consciously redirecting one's attention from one fixation to another. In contrast, if this process happens unconsciously, then it's referred to as task switching. So this is a conscious effort on the part of the dog, meaning, hey, there's something going on, there's either a blower going off near me or someone's trying to trim my nails or someone's wanting to give me a shot. And I instead are consciously now putting my attention, directing my attention to the food at the bottom of the box. So now, when I first looked at this, of course it brought back memories because A, I'm all for anything and everything, that works if it helps us manage our dogs. It increases the quality of life for them, a quality of life for us, and also safety. So again, I don't care what your methodology is, I don't care what you're gonna try. If it ain't broke, don't go trying to fix it or try to break it. So therefore, when I saw these videos and looked at the pictures, it took me back into my days when I trained marine mammals, specifically dolphins. And biannually, we really stressed these animals out. We'd have to pull them from the water and draw blood, uh, do a complete physical on the animals. Now, let me tell you something. These dolphins can vary in their weight from 300 pounds all the way up to 600 pounds. It is all muscle. And when we would uh, have to draw their blood, the people that were helping with the physical drew straws. Uh, Maybe anywhere from four of us to six of us, depending on how heavy that, that dolphin was. And we drew straws to see who got the front end, the unlucky guy, and who was the unlucky individual who got the back end. Because the back end is called the flute. It's the tail, and it can slap you and break your nose in a second. I I've been slapped by it twice. Fortunately, I don't know how it did because my nose is so long, how I missed my nose, but it did. But nevertheless, I suffered severe black eyes, and I was very discouraged. Uh, then I drew the unlucky straw of getting the front end. And now all of a sudden, I have some nice little wounds to this day that have never ever healed, just little scars, and because I was bitten by the dolphin. So after going through that for a few years, I'm thinking, okay, this animal is incredibly stressed. And it's incredibly gifted. Dolphins have the ability, they have what's called selective circulation. And that's a process that allows them to shut off blood flow to the skin to their digestive system, and their outer extremities. So this animal is now on dry land. It's supposed to be in water. It has six guys laying on top of it, and they want to draw blood from, if you're if you're on uh, live right now watching this show, you can, right where the red arrow is pointing, that is the apex of the fluke, and that's where the blood would be drawn. However, the stressed animal would shut that thing off, and you might as well be sticking that needle in a cork. You wouldn't get anything, not one single drop. So, of course, this had to be done over and over and over again. And I just, I'm going to be honest with you, I got fed up with it. I felt sorry for the dolphins. Uh, You build a relationship with these animals because you work them seven days a week. You watch them grow older. Uh, They're incredibly intelligent. And I was just done with it. I've had enough of it. I don't care what the United States Navy said. I don't care what Naval Ocean Systems Command said. That's it. I started working on desensitizing uh, some of my dolphins that I was responsible for so that we could draw this blood in a way that they would give it, meaning they weren't so stressed. Uh, So over several, almost a year, I worked with a dolphin named Cherry. And Cherry was a six-year-old dolphin female. And I taught her to present her tail to me. So she would be upside down in the water, vertically, nose down. Present her tail, I would hold it, and then of course reward her and that graduated from me holding her tail and pinching that apex area to thumping it with my finger, and then a little rubber band and then poking it with a paper clip and long, it finally, after several several months, she would do a tail present, and we were able to draw the blood without the dolphin ever coming out of the water so guys this is this was kind of like cognitive shifting, the only difference here is that the animal was making a conscious effort of doing this, but it was not being baited by food. There was no food basket dangling at the bottom of the pen. It made a conscious effort to do it. And once the dog did give, um, a dog, dolphin, (laughs) gave blood, uh, then it would, of course, surface, and I would reward uh, Cherry handsomely. So I get it. So, you know, and again, we as humans are constantly doing what's called cognitive shifting. We listen to biofeedback. People are, for example, you can't sleep. Well, when you do that old 999, 998, 997, whether you're counting beer bottles or not, uh, you're doing what's called cognitive shifting. You're trying to not focus on the fact that you're getting stressed out because you're supposed to get to sleep because you got a big day tomorrow and you're not getting any sleep. So you want to go to sleep. So you do this old backwards counting thing or, or you count sheep or whatever. Also, a lot of people are afraid of flying. And because they are, they will read anything. I mean, you would catch them reading that book on land. But in that plane, I'll read anything, watch anything, listen to music that you would never hear me listening to. That's what people do. They want to have a cognitive shift from the fear of flying. And then, of course, there's a convenience shift stuck in traffic. OK, so therefore, I'm going to listen to Brian. How about that? That's a cognitive shift. Uh, I want to listen to the radio to music whatever so guys we do this as humans we do this many many times a day we are always doing it so why why can we not do this with dogs so
2: I think the one thing that you hit on that is most important with this the the box uh, desensitization method is is the conscious effort and that's always how I've always known to desensitize dogs to whatever, whether it be nail trims, whether it be vet visits, whatever the, co- the case may be. The only successful way to eventually desensitize them to whatever it is that you're trying to desensitize is to have them make the conscious decision to act forward what, by either A, giving you the paw and, and remaining the paw in your hand until you're done with it. And you know that conscious effort is what makes, what makes all the difference. Agreed.
3: Well, aren't you just teaching them to be distracted when you're putting the food in the box? It's just a distraction method. It's not teaching them a coping skill, right? I mean, because that's the end result. You want them to cope with what's going on.
1: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you always have to look at what is the bigger problem. you know, what are you are you addressing the bigger problem? Is there an underlying GAD, uh, what we call a generalized anxiety disorder, or an underlying, fear, uh, irrational fear of people who are not posing as a real valid threat, so on and so forth. Are we dealing with brain dysfunction? If you are, yes, having your dog's head in the box will not address the bigger issue that I have maybe hippocampus degeneration, I have elevated glucocorticoids, and so on and so forth. So yeah, you you always have to ask that.
3: Well, and if you have, you have to have this box, and you have to have food and for, for you to do anything to the dog. I take the dog to the vet. Okay. I'm just thinking about this. I have my dog on my leash. I'm walking into the vet. I'm also supposed to be carrying a box and food. Where? How do you do all of that?
1: Well, I guess, you know, desperation calls for desperate measures. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I've seen people get things done that you're right. You ask that question, you go, how do you get that thing done? And again, having owned a vet hospital for many years, I've stood in in exam rooms, thousands of times, tiny little rooms in which if Brian decided that he needed to take flight, flight was not an option. Um, So again, if this dog's got his head in the box and the reason why it's in the box is because it becomes very aggressive or fearful when receiving vaccinations, if I'm in that room as the vet tech or I'm in there as a veterinarian, yeah, it's a lot of, okay, is this going to work because... When you are that close enough to give the animal a shot, you are in the critical zone. You are not in the threat zone where you get growled at, where the dog posture shows his hackles, does a certain stance. You are in the, I am going to bite you if I can't run away from you. And so basically, it's initial success or total failure type situation there. But you know, one of the things when researching this and really digging into it deep uh, to find out, wow. That is, will this work? Is this something worth trying? Um, I did a little digging, and the Department of Psychology in Washington State University, September of last year, did a little study on cognitive shifting. Again, with humans, there's there's no definitive studies done on this with dogs. Not the way that this is now being out there, uh, being put out there by some trainers. Uh, if it's there. I just didn't see it. I couldn't find it. Doesn't mean it's not there. But anyway, I have nothing to reference uh, on, use as a reference, other than the studies that have been performed on humans. And one of the things that this particular study done, again, by the Department of Psychology at Washington State University, they found out that individuals with high trait anxiety, now, okay, what is trait anxiety? Trait anxiety refers to a relative stable disposition. Again, listen to those words. A relatively stable disposition within the individual to judge a wide range of environmental events as potentially threatening. So individuals with high trait anxiety tend to be worse at flexibly adapting goal-directed behavior to meet challenging demands relative to those with low trait anxiety. So, of course, you know, I deal a lot with fearful and aggressive dogs. And I can tell you right now, again, if this works for you, you just go for it. As long as no one gets hurt, as long as no one gets to be your bite test dummy. But if it works for you, go for it. But me personally and professionally, I I can name off right now an easy, easy 50 dogs that I am going to tell you all day, every day, this will not work.
3: Well, aren't most of the dogs that you need to use this technique with going to be high anxiety dogs? I, I would think so.
1: Or they are just phobic. Or they have a situation, a certain stimulus that
2: will immediately activate their stress response at a very, very high level. From my understanding, that the dogs that were that people were using this with was because of anxiety or or fear based aggression issues. But I think that is. I think we're treating a symptom here. I mean, if, if you can distract the dog and and create it to not be aggressive, great. That's awesome. I think that, I think in certain situations where at the vet, that's exactly what needs to take place. I mean, how often do you go to the vet? I mean, there, there's, there is a time to distract, you know, there is a time to prevent and things like that. And you don't have to go through full training regimens to get the dog to accept it. If, If you have a long haired dog who hates grooming, then you probably need to address that because you're going to be grooming the dog quite often. But if you have a dog that you just take once a year for, for vaccinations and a health check, there's nothing wrong with putting a muzzle on the dog for that 10, 15 minute checkup and then get the heck out of there. So I think that that's the issue is that they're addressing the symptom and they're not addressing the dog's actual fear towards those things. Because once you take the box out of the equation, I don't care how long you do it for with the box in the equation, the dog's still going to have the exact same response to the nail clippers or the vet as if the box wasn't there.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, you just got to get into this thing and you've got to make sure again, if you're doing this with your dog, I'm not saying it's wrong at all. I'm just saying You, as the dog's owner, are responsible for the safety of other individuals, and you're also responsible for your dog's own well-being. And part of that is when you subject the animal to a provocative event or to a stimulus that can be very frightening, make sure you take your time in this and make sure that we're actually not causing more harm uh, than good. Now, one thing I will say from a plus side on this, if you can get the dog's attention so deep into that box so far into it. I cannot see any evil I hear no evil uh, yeah something's touching me but my brain isn't registering that that haptic signal because I'm, I'm so focused on this food in the bottom of the box well then the dog won't consolidate memories about the event The only memories it'll have of that event will be me eating this food out of the bottom of my my box, So I do know, I, I can think of some dogs that I, I deal with right now that this would work with them. Uh, but they, they are not the dogs that I'm treating right now on pharmaceutical medications with, with antidepressants or benzodiazepines or antagonists and so on and so forth. These are animals that probably would do well on cannabidiol, uh, some sort of anything that would calm the animal nat- just from a natural standpoint. Uh, you know, stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, so on and so forth. I just don't know how much I'm going to trust it with uh, in a situation that has proven in the past that I'm
3: going to react in that situation. So I have a question: Why a box? Um, is it what you said to partially blind the dog and to maybe muffle what they're? hearing and things like that, why can't somebody just sit in front of them and give them treats or squirt that cheesy stuff on the exam table in the vet's office and they just lick that up?
1: Well, from a logical standpoint, it would have to be the old ostrich with my head in the sand type situation. If my head is buried in the sand, it's kind of like a horse with blinders. You do a lot of these things. If you blindfold the animal, then many times they will start to shut down because they can't see. The, the threat. So if I can't see it, remember dogs learn with their eyes first, then touch second. So that's my little part where I get a little bit nervous. Uh, yeah, with my head's in the box, I don't see Joshua approaching with the nail tremors. However, I feel someone touching my paws, and then all of a sudden, let like, that thing get into the quick, and now I feel pain. And I'm telling you, it had better be
3: really, really, really good food. They need chicken in the box. Now,
1: now maybe now, if Joshua had his head in this little treat <laughs> bucket over here with these little Heath <laughs> treats that Kathy Berry brought, you know, I could probably trim his toenails a little short, and he'd right. probably just stay in the <laughs> box. But again, it's got to be something It's all about incentive, all about attention. Can it grabs the, the dog's attention enough to undergo any sort of previous bias towards Toenail trims, vaccinations, people coming over, so on and so forth. So, you know, the other question that begs is, how long will this work for? I mean, I mean, at some point, I don't care how good that food is. You, It's kind of like me. If I've got a big uh, one of the other buckets of treats that Kathy brought for us, it's not in here because I'm not going to share with anyone. But if I'm digging into that bucket of treats and Kira reaches over from my treats and I've just, just started... I'm going to slap her hand and say, back off, woman. This is competitive aggression. Really these are my treats. But give me about 10 treats later, you know, I'm not as the value of those treats have diminished with every single one of those I consume. And so I will reach a point to where, all right, I'll share.
3: Well, what I've seen in these videos is they don't have a whole bunch of food in the bottom of the box. They're like tossing one piece of kibble at a time. So I guess they're just kind of dragging it out.
1: Yeah, they're kind of refueling it. It reminds me of a uh, refueling a plane in the air. You're just keeping it going as it goes there. Uh, But again, I don't care how you do it, whether there's a bunch of food in the bottom of the box, whether you just keep tossing it in there at some point, kind of like using treats in training. They're wonderful with a dog that is super hungry, really wants that treat. But I'm telling you what. About 20 treats into it, I don't have the same motivation. And anytime we are working with animals, even work with humans, it always boils down to attention. Do I have your attention? What motivates you? And do you have the cognition, even the ability to learn what it is I'm trying to teach you? Uh, Imagine, Joshua, if you're really, really, really thirsty. Uh, So I give you a teaspoon of water. Is that going to quench your thirst? But imagine if I give you 25 teaspoons of
2: water. What does that do for you? I really wouldn't want the 26th.
1: Okay. So that's <laughs> what I'm talking about there. So now you have to ask duration. This has obviously got to be used for something that's very short in duration. And that's what a vaccination can be. Uh, nail trims, yep, if you're really good at it and you can trim them and without getting into the quick, that can't take more than a couple of minutes so, again, as long as we're looking at all of this stuff, there I, there was one video in which I saw, and it was a white dog, German Shepherd-looking type dog. And uh, I'm telling you, there was a few moments in which you and I were watching, Joshua. I held my breath. I suddenly went, oh, and I waited, and I was so tense. You would have thought this was going on right in front of me. I was just waiting for this, oh, my gosh, moment in which this thing just that head pops out that box in a second and again as I write for aggression to be effective it must be swift and it will be swift so this is kind of like one of those again I say it all the time initial success or total failure are you willing to live with the total failure and is everyone else willing to live with the total
2: failure there's a couple times in that video that I mean this dog was giving clear clear signals of leave me alone (laughs) i've got my head in this box and there's food in this box and you're bugging me i mean there's really not any difference than a bowl with food and you're pestering a dog while it's eating and that's where i think that this thing i mean again we talked about ways in which that it can be beneficial but there's also ways that this can be potentially dangerous i mean if that dog wasn't food aggressive prior to this training they were on a fast track to make it food aggressive and and that's where I think that you, you really have to make sure that you're conscious of understanding, you know, dog signals and, and what they're trying to communicate, because it seemed as though every single time that dog would stiffen up and let them know in its language, hey, back off, I'm, I'm eating this food. That's exactly when they would deliver another piece of food. And I mean, again, if I were to design a program to teach a dog how to become food aggressive, they were displaying it right there.
3: Well, I can relate to this a little bit on a human level because they're uh, thinking back 20 years ago, there was a natural childbirth method called the Bradley method, and it's what I used for Savannah first. And after 27 hours of natural childbirth and using this Bradley method, I'm telling you what, if somebody had tried to give me food, I would have turned into a three-headed monster if I wasn't there already. So that's what's
1: wrong with her. (laughs) Okay. So now now I get it. Uh, I'm with it. All right, guys. uh, You know, again, why do we have this show? We're here to challenge our peers and we're here to be challenged by our peers, all in the spirit of promoting, again, better welfare for our dogs, a higher quality of life and safety for all. That's our job. That is your job. Uh, I do think that this, I'm emphatic about it, this will work for many, many, many dogs. However, it will fail miserably for other dogs. Who will be immune? These are the dogs that are even immune to training. When you're there's a big difference in your stress response and where it goes uh, from the one that we are biologically adapted to deal with to the other one in which you go so far up that reactive zone that you literally black out. You are on total autopilot. Everything that is being done is being done from implicit learning. Uh, an instinct, not explicit learning. You travel into that land. You will not consolidate a memory of that event. Uh, The amygdala will always know it, but you won't be able to pull that from your cortex. It's those type of animals. No, I'm I'm not going there with that type of animal. We have to solve that problem on a much bigger scale, much more aggressive type treatment. But again, hey, tell you what, you think you got a dog who just kind of doesn't want to take make you into an amputee when you try to trim his nails but really just doesn't care for it or is or a little bit afraid of it, uh, go for it. Give this thing a shot. Get, give it a try. Make sure you got good food in there and you don't deal with other problems like diarrhea and everything. Uh, go for it. Just see. But, guys, be very careful with it. If you brought in a dog into my vet hospital back in the day with a box and a box full of food and you explained to me what you're going to do, I'm going to say, well, that's fine. And, Danny, if I tell you what, we're also going to have a leash on that dog. And that could be enough to, if the dog wasn't trained with a leash on it, uh, that could be enough to send his head right out of the box. But nevertheless, I'm sorry, I'm responsible for my own safety, the safety of my staff. Uh, so therefore, I'm just not going to, you're going to have to prove it to me. It's kind of like a trust but verify situation. But other than that, I mean, I think it's cool. <laughs> it looks cool anyway on, on the video, but I'm just concerned that this thing is going to be somehow or another sold as the end-all, be-all type treatment for dogs suffering from fears. And, and one last thing on that, and then I'm going to stop talking about it because I think you got enough. Trust me when I say this. There are no such things as one-dimensional phobias and anxieties with dogs. Okay, so if you're dealing with you just may be dealing with something that you think is because that is the issue that is the most pronounced issue. That is the one that's causing the degradation and quality of life and safety. So you're all focused. You're hyper focused on it. But let me tell you, there are other underlying issues. And as soon as you suppress one kind of like that old game that the kids used to play when you smack a mole, you smack one, it goes away. Another one pops up. The same thing happens. They do start to because, again, part of this is the animal's acting out on invalid threats, on perceived noises, anything that caused anxiety. Anxiety is like shifting sand underneath your feet. You never settle down. And as soon as you deactivate one provocative event or the provocative stimulus, don't be surprised if another one wears its ugly head. So I'm all about addressing the big issue about healing a damaged brain and then once i have that i have an animal who will be far more receptive to any and every technique i try to desensitize it like the thinking inside the box thing okay guys what we're going to do now is we're going to take a short break let you kind of digest that While we digest treats. (laughs) Oh, you will not get the treats. And we're going to come back, and we've got some questions to answer here. There's some really good questions. I want to give us plenty of time today to answer those questions. So we'll be back in about two minutes.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A Variety Channel After years of waiting There's a radio show for shotgunning enthusiasts Worldwide Tune into Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation For the very best in wing and clay shooting talk Join Marty and his guests as they bring you hunting and shooting information that you can use. So whether you're a beginner or a seasoned pro, this show can be your go-to source for wing and clay shooting information. Listen live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific for Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Taming the Wild and your dog. To reach the program today, send an email to brian at tamingthewild.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone.
1: We were talking about thinking inside the box and covered that in great detail. Now, I want to, before we head into answering questions, again, dog training, owning dogs, anything in the pet industry. The what I personally believe the motivation for anyone who decides that they want to embark upon a career in the pet industry should again always be for the welfare of the pet, quality of life for the pet and the owner, and safety for all involved. Now, in doing that, you will not always have everyone agreeing with you, you will have varying opinions, differing opinions, but the hallmark of achieving a goal that those three goals, the has to be the ability to have dialogue, to enter into the pool of meaning. Um, not like this. So last week got an email and right off the bat, it's from a fictional character that was in uh, the game of Thrones and it had a fake phone number and had a fake email. Okay. So that's your big red flag, number one. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I will just read all the adjectives in the first little sentence. Your article on shot callers, first of all, I if you read my article, then you'd understand that people who call them shot callers immediately, immediately announced to the whole wide world, they are they don't understand them. Yeah. They don't understand Uneducated. the science behind it. And they therefore, if you don't understand that, then you it's probably very difficult to apply it properly. But your article on shot callers is completely and utter bullcrap. All right, here we go. Now, we uh, let's forget out of the pool of meaning. We have safety issues involved here. It's not going to go anywhere, but it certainly didn't. It just kept on going. And it says anyone who uses pain and you don't have a license to use pain and pain hurts. Really? Um, and you just use as an excuse <laughs> to keep on using mean aversive methods, mean aversive methods. Uh, and there was actual study done, however, none was cited, not a single bit, no, no reference whatever. When I talk about studies, I cite them. I cite who did them and when they were done and what was the results that they uh, achieved uh, by doing this study. Uh, And they said uh, where dogs showed stress during training. Yeah, you're supposed to be stressed during training. I was stressed every single day I was in school, especially in my math class. I was stressed, but we were given the biology to overcome mild to moderate stresses that are transient. So therefore, there's such a thing as good stress versus really harmful stress. So yeah, if you come training with me, whether you're a human or a dog, stand by, you're going to get stressed. I just only got stressed in the military and talking about that cognitive shifting every day. It was, son, it's mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. So again, I had to do a lot of cognitive shifting uh, undergoing that kind of training. Uh, Shock training is lazy, short way of training. Uh, It makes people afraid. Uh, The dog's afraid, and there's fear, and it's not morally right, and it's a flat-out lie, lies, lies, lies. Nine lies inside of two sentences. Are you too afraid to admit you might be wrong and that your knowledge isn't as expert as you think? No, I'm not afraid. But I'm telling you this much, anything I put out, I believe it with every atom in my body. And therefore, you cite good old Victoria Stilwell and Karen Pryor and everyone else like that, but you don't cite yourself. They um, didn't
3: even give themselves a real name. Yeah. We tried to contact them to yeah. discuss it. And hey, I'm
1: Brian. Uh, it's Brian with a Y at TameTheWild.com. Uh, you can reach me just about anywhere, and I'm on the radio show anytime you want to come on. But that's the problem here. So, there was no ability to reach out to this person, because I did. Uh, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm sorry. I'm not a big TV buff, and I certainly was not a Game of Thrones uh, person. Probably only people in the, the entire world that weren't. I wasn't. I'm not afraid to admit that. I didn't realize that this was a fictitious person that wrote me. So, how long, care I spent a good hour writing right and posing. Right right. yeah. in an
3: incredibly respectful email that I think this person didn't deserve, but.
1: Yeah, That's my thought. well, I spent the time doing it because I wanted to enter to a dialogue. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Uh, I let's move forward. Let's let's talk about our differences and see if we can move forward. However, we when don't. I hit when I hit send, I got that little error thing came back that said this isn't a real email. And
3: we don't all have to agree, but we do all have to be respectful because those things like that we wake up to them frequently. They always come in the middle of the night. So it's the first thing we see in the morning. Well, I And it's, they hurt your feelings. They hurt mine anyway. They don't really hurt his.
2: Well, we don't all have to agree on the philosophy of things. But one thing that we do have to agree on is facts. Facts do not care about uh, what agenda you're trying to push. And that's one thing that we all have to agree on. Just because if you want to be any type of competent human being, you have to accept the facts. So the issue here that I have is it says you can control. You can have control over your dog completely by positive training. If you do it right. Okay. Here is my thing. Prove it. Cause I trust me, I have gone out there. I have looked at videos. I've, I mean, you can pull up all day long of balanced trainers getting reliable obedience, reliable obedience, and just video after video, after video, after video, find one Find one where a positive reinforcement trainer, Victoria Stilwell, or, or bring your best, has completed a dog from start to finish and, and has reliable obedience, is able to take that dog out around strange dogs, public places, and have complete control over that dog. Show it to me. Bring it, please. Yeah. Well, let's hop off of that.
1: I just want to put that out there because if you're listening to this show and you have a friend or you have anyone that is like that, meaning they are just stonewalled, I'm going to do it my way or it's the highway, please tell them, I invite you, I welcome you with peace. Let's talk, let's have a dialogue, all of us trainers out there, love you all. Hey guys, we're all here, but we're trying to do the right thing. Let's just make sure we are doing the right thing. Again, we will have different opinions, but you have to make sure that you have, again, Not your own interest in mind, the interest of your client, the interest of the dog, and the interest of everyone else. And if you have that, and if that's in your heart, then you will do the right thing. Okay. I just had to put that out there in case you know someone, tell them where to reach me. Okay. Now we have questions, so let's get to them.
3: Okay. My dog loves to chase his ball, but he never brings it back to me. How do I train him to retrieve the ball and bring it back?
1: Oh, boy, that's a great one to teach your dog. Uh, and that was last week's question we didn't get to. So I'm glad we're right. starting right off the bat with that question. First of all, know this. Remember when I talked last week about a rat in a laboratory, when it runs on a wheel, by, when it chooses to do so, uh, the stress response is lower. But when you make the rat run on the wheel, then it's a completely different story. You know, you, you kind of need a dog. You can do what's called forced retrieve. You know I mean, you will go get that and you will bring it back. But it sure is welcoming. It sure is cool when you have a dog who just loves to do it. They already just love to go after it. Now, that's that's step one. So, try to, you know, see if you can entice your dog just through play to find interest in this ball. Uh, if they have a natural prey or natural hunt drive. And again, the only difference in the two prey drive, I throw the ball, they can see it. So they chase it and they grab it. Hunt drive is they see the ball fly through the air, disappear in very high grass. And now they've lost track of it, but they hunt for the ball till they find it. Those type of dogs sure is a whole lot easier to train them to do that. Okay. But also remember now here's that, that is their fun part, chasing the ball. Your fun part is you getting to stand there with your coffee and have the dog bring it right back to you. That's At least that's my fun part.
3: And later that day when the (laughs) dog is tired.
1: (laughs) Yeah, bring it back to me. Uh, But that's not natural. It's not natural to go get the ball and bring it back to you. Uh, Many dogs will learn how to do it quickly, uh, but they have to be trained to do so because nature says, hey, regardless of how... Bountiful, the resources are, remember, we are highly competitive and the, that bounty is rarely divided up evenly. So there's kind of one of those where I'm going to go get it and then I'll keep it away from you. And now it morphs into something horrible. I threw the ball, dog grabbed it, ran over there to the corner of the yard and lays down. And I was trying to do this uh, to trying to get energy uh, out of the dog. And it just turn, it backfires on you. So first things first, anytime I want to teach something complex, and I'm telling you that's complex, it's a complex behavior. When you want to teach your dog to go against the grain from a natural standpoint and do what you wanted to do, you need to break that thing down into every fundamental part and then put all the parts together. So the first thing I'm going to work on is good old out, drop it, leave it, whatever. Meaning if you have something in your mouth, I'm going to train you to let go of it right when I say so. Uh, That comes in handy when the dog brings the ball back or whatever it is that you had them retrieve and you want to take it from them so you can do this again. But now all of a sudden, no, no one ever told me I had to let go of it. Yeah, I brought it back. But if you reach down here and try and take it from me, then we're going to have the old Joshua Cure thing over the treat bucket over here. So I'm going to work on out. I'm going to work on that outside of The fetching, because again, if the dog naturally wants to fetch or not fetch, but naturally wants to chase a ball or something, if you apply a lot of pressure, the kind of pressure that will need to be applied to teach an animal to reflexively spit something out of its mouth right when you say so, that stress could be done if it's done right there on that playing field and that playing yard while you are playing. There we go. Now I had the proverbial rat on the wheel. Now I don't want to chase the ball anymore because chasing the ball means at the end of the journey here, I am forced to give it up. Go train out or drop it outside of having the dog chase the ball or playing with the dog with the ball. Next thing you do is you train the dog to hold it. So kind of inverse way. One minute I'm teaching you to drop it. The next minute I'm teaching you to hold it. So now you teach the dog to hold it. And I'm just kind of going over this because for years I trained dogs to be service dogs for children that had muscular dystrophy. So they were trained to fetch just about anything uh, that the child directed them to retrieve. So we worked on hold. And then when you teach a dog to hold, you use a command like hold it, what, what have you. And if you can start off with something that they can hold comfortably in their mouth, comfortably, something really easy. A lot of times for some of these dogs, you can just be a, a rope toy. Those are great. You can put them right back behind the canines in that little space called the premolars. That is the easiest area for a dog to carry something because the canines keep it from falling out of the mouth when they dip their head forward, and yet they're not crunching on it with an open mouth with the molars in the back. So place it right there, close their mouth, and I'll usually put my index finger right up in there, There's a little V-notch underneath the bottom jaw, just press on it lightly and say, hold it, hold it, and go for like one second, now out. Then they spit it out, reward the dog, and you keep this up till you get to a point, the word, you can say hold it, and they'll carry around an umbrella or anything, and they'll just keep on holding it no matter what until you say out. So guys, that out thing and that hold it, that's about a good solid week to two weeks worth of work, you know, doing about what, maybe a lesson per day. Then, now you teach the fetch. And again, when you're training the dog who already loves to chase the ball, here's what happens. You throw the ball. Only throw it about six to eight feet away to start with. The closer they are to you, the more influence you have over their behavior. So you now say, fetch or bring or whatever. And it could be a brand new word that never heard it before. So what? they will get associated with the behavior. They pick up the ball and as soon as they do, you say, hold it. And while I'm doing this, by the way, I have them on a long line. Again, that's why they're only about, I'm only tossing this thing about six to eight feet away. As soon as they pick up the ball, hold it. And they hold it. Now you can say, come, or just reel them back to you. When they come to you, now say, out. And reward that dog. And I am telling you, you will have a dog that will become a fetching machine in no time. And in fact, it can even become like, our dog, Captain, our cattle dog, who is OCD, if you throw the ball, he will bring it back and put it dead smack between your two feet. And even if you wander off, he picks up the ball, comes over to you, puts it right between your two feet. And he will do that until you say, uncle, and you pick up that ball and you throw it again. Uh, so he's influencing our behavior. He see, he learned, get close. I'll put it right between Brian's feet. I'll just bug the daylights out of him. He'll finally bend over and throw the darn thing. Remember, that's my fun part. He trained us. Yeah, so break it down to those three components. Out, hold it, fetch, or bring, or whatever. I don't care. Just come up with the word. That's how you get it done. All right, I think we have time for another question. Let's go for it.
3: Okay. I have a new German Shepherd puppy who is eight weeks old. How long can I leave him in his crate between potty breaks?
1: Oh, I get this question all the time. Oh, you went there. Yeah. Sorry. That's a hard question. That's a very difficult question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Just from a biological standpoint, you have a baby. It's a baby. It's eight weeks old. Oh my gosh. It can. Yeah. it, It First of all, fluids go through the system a lot faster than solids. Uh, canned food will move through the system and no no more than for most dogs in about four hours flat and it's, it's, it's coming out the other end. Dry food can be six to eight hours later and it's headed out the other end, so and not all the Again, if I have a great microbial population, I don't have anxiety. Remember what happens when I become anxious, and what happens to most eight-week-old puppies—they're going through crate training. They are separated from their pack. They just got whisked out of their litter. They've brought—they've been brought to you, into your home, and now I've lost my social support. I have no litter mates. I don't have my mother anymore. I'm in this alien environment. With these furless bipeds, I have no predictive information. I have no ability to, to control what I do and how I do it. And now I'm in this crate and now I'm really stressed. So, and that can cause the animal to go more often until they start to have explicit learning, which, is, which uh, occurs from predictive information. Hey, you know what? They do leave and that freaked me out at first, but they, they, they come back. And they they always come back. They kind of come back when the shadows fall here. uh, and, And I kind of get fed during this time. And I kind of get fed in the evening when the shadows fall the other way or when darkness starts to come over the house. Now they have predictive information. Anytime you have that, now you have control. Anytime you have that, you have a lower stress response, which means your GI system is going to work more efficiently, more effectively, which can then change how long they can hold it. So, I probably just confused the daylights out of everyone. <laughs> They're going, okay, just give me the answer, Brian. Um, you're going to have to experiment. I'm just going to say this much. An eight-week-old puppy, you've got about four hours. Let me just put to that on on any sort of food that you feed them. Uh, liquids uh, are going to move through the system a lot faster. Now, again, there's sleeping time, meaning when I go to sleep, then my parasympathetic nervous system kicks into gears, lowering my heart rate and everything else down. So the old factory for the old poop factory and the old urine factory is just kind of not working in that higher gear that it does when the animal is awake. So you may be able to stretch that out much longer during the nighttime. But other than that, guys, just find out uh, you got to just go for it. And trust me, you will receive predictive information in no time on about how long your particular puppy can hold it. Because, gosh, there's so many factors. Food, what kind of, were are you feeding? Is it good food? Is it bad food? Are they nervous dogs? Are they not nervous dogs?
2: Yeah. Anytime I get this question, I always say, okay, well, I've got about 15 questions to ask you before I can give you an answer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> amen. So I hope that helps. Again, guys, you know where to reach me. Brian with the Y at
3: four hours, that's safe.
1: Yeah. Four, four hours. hours is about safe. Now, and again, here goes someone. They're going to say, Brian, I only got an hour. Okay. <laughs> I, I get it.
3: That's, we got another question. We do. Yes. Okay. Does the order in which I feed my dogs affect their places in the hierarchy of the household?
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, right off the bat, I will say this much: it could cause a behaviors within the hierarchy to occur, or the hierarchy to suddenly become a lot more stable. Because you have, let's say, four dogs and dog number one is sitting there waiting to be fed and you feed dog number three. Well, if dog number one really wants that food, then dog number one may travel over to dog number three's bowl and say, buzz off, my food. I'm going to take it. And you can certainly have a fight on your hands or whatever. Uh, But again, even when, uh, so my overall answer to this would probably be no. Um, no, because that hierarchy has already been worked out from so many things. Like you just said, Joshua, you, you say you have 15 questions. Well, there's a minimum of 15 situations in which this hierarchical situation has already been worked out. And it could have an issue in which one jumps on three if one is new to the household or three is new to the household and the hierarchy has not occurred. Um, then, then you could have an issue, but for the most part, they have predictive information. Yeah, okay, yeah, I saw you drop that bowl. But that is their bowl, and I will get my bowl next. I guess it's just coming a little bit late. And lastly, just so you know, when wolves feed off of a large kill, they have what's called a free uh, a feeding zone, meaning it's mine. It's ownership zone. They get this zone. It's kind of like, again, like I used the example of the big plate of food. That's my food. It's right here. I'm located right here on the the carcass of this animal, and it's mine. And you will see young cubs eating right next to the older adults, Uh, or young adults and adolescents within the pack, they're eating right next to them because they allow what's called an ownership zone. The big difference is the higher up I am in that pecking order, that hierarchy, well, you you can guess what's on my plate versus what's on your plate. Oh, yeah, I've got the good stuff. You're going to get the stuff that's not so good, but don't worry. They'll keep you alive and they'll keep you alive long enough to where one day you may be able to work yourself up to the good stuff, but they do have what's called an ownership zone. So in that hierarchy exists outside of that, as soon as they back off that carcass, okay, now we're back to, I'm me and you're you. So not a, uh, I don't think that this is going to really affect it at all. That's my answer. You got a
2: different one. Well, I was just, just going to mention that even in wolf packs, I mean, you see lower ranking members fighting for that spot against higher ranking members because it was, theirs essentially from the get-go and I kind of simulate that in my own home with um, all three of my dogs I release them to eat all at the exact same time but I I bring them to their bowls one at a time Um, and they eat from the same bowl in the same location every single day and and I advocate for the other dogs if they try to venture off to somebody else's bowl if if somebody gets done eating first but it's kind of like that eating zone that that's mine. That's that's my location. That's where I eat every single day. Sounds
1: good. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, if you've got dogs who love their food that much, it's going to be over in 30 seconds anyway. And speaking of 30 seconds, we're going to be over in about 30 seconds. So guys, next week, we're going to be talking about jumping, but we're going much deeper into it because there has been a study done and I will cite it and I'll cite exactly who did it and when they did it in which they are now wondering, hey, does your attitude, does your behavior, does your personality actually affect why a dog wants to jump? Will it jump on you more than it'll jump on someone else? And then, of course, we'll address. I don't care about that. What do we do about it? So that's coming next week, guys. Uh, until then, if you have any questions, send them in, and we'll check you guys out then and and back off from our treat bowl over here. You too. <laughs> I've got my hands full, so guys, you have a great week. We'll see you then.
0: Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog. Next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it.